You're listening to the Winter Hughes Podcast with Joe and Eric Hughes. And now, here's the Hughes Brothers. Welcome in to another Winter Hughes Podcast, a various sports podcast with a heavy focus on the Oakland A's. I'm your host, Joe Hughes, alongside my co-host and brother, Eric Hughes. And apologies if I'm a little raspy today. I've been dealing with a little congestion, but we're going to try to get through a show because... Rick, it's a big week. It's a little more than a week to go before the MLB trade deadline comes up, and the A's likely to be active in that market as sellers. We already saw a big trade with Shintaro Fujinami sent to Baltimore, and want to get your early impressions on some of the top prospects the A's have called up. We'll go over that, plus a Unite the Bay protest. A's and Giants fans trying to come together, and a protest similar to what we saw from the reverse boycott. We'll talk about that, and Maybe a little bit about the A's losing better, which has become a theme we've been talking about overall. But let's get right into it, Rick. It's uh, the week before the trade deadline, so there's some members of this Oakland A's team that may be playing their final games in the green and gold with the white cleats on. And overall, when you're watching this team that struggled a lot this season, is it going to be a little somber seeing some of these veterans that we're going to talk about? Like maybe a guy like Tony Kemp, who's been a member of this team longer than this season, has established a rapport with the fan base. You know, he's so charming, got such a great personality that even as a former Astro, you have come to like him as a member of the Oakland A's and what he's represented for this franchise. So, you know, there there's some players we're going to talk about, but, you know, if you potentially are looking at maybe saying goodbye to a guy like Tony Kemp, how does the trade deadline hit you when the A's are sellers maybe than when they're buyers? Last podcast, we talked about, you know, maybe a surprise Fuji trade. And now we've gone and seen that executed there, right? Which for some people was surprising because he has started getting some control back and started getting some command. But it kind of has shown the way the A's are looking at this season and maybe even like the upcoming future year. They're like, he is starting to get it like... He's got to go. So Fuji's gone. For Tony Kemp, you kind of feel like he deserves better, right? And like (laughs) when Tony comes up, he's somebody that you do feel he's going to put the bat on the ball and he's going to make contact and he's going to put that ball in play. It's not always going to be, you know, a walk-off hit, but because of Tony Kemp, we have had a few walk-off hits. Where there are some other guys that come up and you're like, he's going to strike out, you know, or he's going to foul out. Like, I just know this. For Tony Kemp, you you do feel like he he has done a lot. You know, in soccer, they often say of players kind of like Tony Kemp that he's been a servant to the club. Like, he's been there, he's done his time, he, he's helped the club maybe through a difficult time. And a lot of times in soccer, what the teams will do is they're like, hey, where, where, where do you want to go? We're going to help you get there, right? So for Tony Kemp, I kind of feel like he he's done what he could. You know, they're looking at this season. If you're like, hey, Fuji, we looked at you as a potential starter for a few years. And you're like, hey, see you later. We're, we're done with it. So you kind of think like, yeah, Tony, good luck for you. You look at some of these other guys like Jace Peterson or Aledmus Diaz. And, you know, you're just kind of hoping like, they go to give these young prospects an opening to come up and play, right? Because we have seen typically what you're going to get from them. And at the fireworks game, Jace Peterson got a couple of RBIs, you know, and 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 key RBIs that were were just much needed. So you're just hoping that because it is such a, a broader field this year that some of these guys are going to move because like you said, like these young prospects coming up are exciting 
and we want to see him have opportunities to get up there. It's going to be that balance for the A's about having some veterans on this team to kind of help provide mentorship and leadership for those young guys and also take some pressure off of them so they don't feel like, man, it's all fallen on my shoulders versus having some value for those guys that are going to be on expiring contracts. So let's get into it because you talked about that broad field. You know, the trade deadline is around the corner that comes up on August 1st and around Major League Baseball. I looked it up earlier. There's about five division races with two teams separated by four or fewer games. So those are close. In the AL, it's the Rays, Astros, and Blue Jays holding on to the three wild card spots as we head into the week. And the three other teams are about three and a half games back. So you've got about nine teams competing for six playoff spots in the AL. In the National League, it's eight teams competing for six playoff spots, you know, unless somebody makes an extraordinary run or somebody falls off. So you've got 17 of 30 teams that are likely to be buyers, 13 teams that are likely to be sellers. And then there's going to be, you know, those top tier guys, no matter what, you know, does Shohei Otani get moved? That is the biggest move that is likely to be out there if that move happens, because he'd be a free agent after this year. The Angels aren't sure if they're going to be able to retain him. They might try to, you know, sign him or make a move themselves to try to, you know, sweeten the pot to convince him to try and stay on there. Or maybe he gets moved to another team and the Angels are looking for the sweetest deal that they can get. After that, there's not a huge player out there that's considered to be on the move. You know, the next tier down, still a really good player and a guy like Marcus Stroman is a pitcher. But then that's kind of where the A's fall in because Oakland does not have a major trade ship ahead of the deadline this year. But we do have some good players. And I want to talk to you about maybe making some creative moves Something that the A's did this offseason that we may see them do this year. But first, let's go through kind of some of their best trade ships. To me, the two top trade ships the A's have, and I want to know your opinion on this, Trevor May and Tony Kemp. And like we said, it's not a major trade ship, but those are two guys that have kind of established themselves as of late after early season struggles. Overall, the numbers, you know, underwhelming for both of them. But let's start with Trevor May. He's a guy the A's signed this year on a one-year deal, $7 million. They wanted him to be the closer. They wanted him to be the foundation of that bullpen. He struggled with anxiety. Part of that related to the pitch clock. Spent some time on the IL, walking a lot of guys, you know, struggling. But since May, he's got a 2.67 ERA and 9 for 9 in save opportunities, including the game we were at on Saturday. So for another team, he is a reliable veteran reliever with closing experience and If you're a team that is making a run and thinking you're going to make it to the World Series, you don't just need a closer, which he can do. You need those setup guys. You need those guys that you can rely on. And he's reestablished himself more in line with the back of his baseball card and those career numbers that made him such a coveted reliever for the A's in the first place. That's my number one trade chip that I think the A's have heading into the deadline. So with Trevor May, I mean, to be honest, I've been under whelmed with him since I saw him come out with black cleats when he should have been wearing white cleats. Like <laughs> that just rubbed me the wrong way. Good thing you don't hold on to a grudge long. No, uh, for him to come out publicly and deal with anxiety, I think is great to, you know, destigmatize that kind of stuff. And I know that that's stuff that follows him beyond the baseball diamond, right? So I'm glad that he's been able to do that just for him as a human being, right? 
Um, and then as a baseball player, when I'm a fan and I'm watching him pitch and you're right, you know, he, he's doing really well. Pinky said it was like nine for nine and save opportunities, but I got to say he does not make it look easy. Like and, yeah, and a lot of walks. He does give up homers. And, and yeah. Even when you're looking at him, you know, cause we used to talk about, you know, uh, Matt Olson's body language, right? You're playing for a team that's got 27 wins. And he's in there like 28 now, baby, 28 well, now. Thank you, 28. But he's like sweating bullets, you know? And like yeah. you look at him and, you know, that that's like part of the game. He's an athlete. Yes, you expect an athlete to be, um, you, you know, sweating while they're playing their game. But it just doesn't make it look easy. I never really got on the Trevor May bandwagon. I also, you know didn't see like what why why are we spending money on people when we're not playing for anything this is why is you spend that money because you want him to pitch well help your bullpen get established and then trade him for some significant piece that can help your farm system or your big league team because the a's are making that transition so that's why you spend the money because you're not planning to spend all that money mm-hmm. you're not planning to have to actually spend the seven million dollars just planning to you know pay three and a half million and then move him. So I think that's why the A's did it. And overall, I get what you mean about Trevor May, but the flip side is because they were able to kind of pinpoint anxiety as the issue for those early season struggles, it wasn't some physical ailment where he like lost velocity. He has struggled with command a little bit more than, you know, traditionally they would have expected, but he's pitched well since then. And he's been a lot more like the guy on the back of his baseball card over his career, which He's got a long career. He's a veteran guy. He's not like some upstart kind of guy. And with relievers, they do ride the teeter-totter a little bit more. You know, they can have those bounce-back years where, you know, you got see a guy follow up a 2.7 ERA with a 4.6 and then go back to that 2.6 ERA the following year. Maybe usage rates are a big part of that. So for the A's and Trevor May, you kind of throw out what he did in those first couple months when he really struggled. You look at what he's doing now and you have to try to sell another team that I've got this reliever that I can offer you. And we talked a little bit about the creative deals because the second most you know, reliable guy I think the A's can offer is another veteran who's kind of in the same mold. Tony Kemp struggled very much in the start of this season, maybe put too much pressure on himself, kind of having to be that veteran guy, struggled. But as of late, Tony Kemp is a veteran guy who can play multiple positions. Over the last month, he's hitting 278 with a 342 on base, seven for seven, in stolen base opportunities. So maybe if you can't get the kind of deal you want for a guy like Trevor May or for Tony Kemp because of the way that they struggled early in the season, you try to package some of these guys. You try to say like, hey, you know what? We'll send you Trevor May and Tony Kemp and we're going to be looking for you know a much better prospect or you know a major league player who's just started to establish himself to try to bring back. And the model for this deal is something that the A's actually did this offseason and when they sent Cole Irvin to Baltimore. And they sent Cole Irvin and the A's included a single A prospect in that deal in order to bring back a better prospect package. That's a model I could see the A's looking to do and think the A's are going to be looking at maybe bringing in more quality rather than quantity in the kind of deals that they can do and be willing to package some of their lesser assets for maybe a better prospect in return. 
that kind of makes me a little happier to hear that, right? Because there there are some veterans that I know you said like, oh, they're they've got contracts, you know, they're they're here. But I do feel like they are blocking the way of some of these younger players. I mean, I do appreciate Oled Mestiz's versatility. Personally, I, I'm ready for Oled Mestiz to go. I, I would rather see other people getting those at-bats. And like we said, having this broad field, these other teams, are they're on another level for the A's. They need depth. You know, just because you're the best player on the A's, you're you could be the bench player. You know, like you most likely will be riding the bench for one of these competitors. Because like we said, there aren't major chips right now. I would like to see some of those packages go and move some of those veterans. Um, I understand what you're saying about May. It's like, well, we we didn't buy him to be like, hey, this is our guy. I like he's an investment. And we said, hey, we're going to put a little money and we're going to hope to get a nice little return on this investment. I'm going to say like I... At some point, it kind of seems like, hey, right now, you got to like cut your losses with some of these guys. And so it, it, I don't know. It, and maybe they'll come up and they'll bounce back up. The one that I think will go, um, you know, just kind of making a prediction is Paul Blackburn, just because I think he has the highest ceiling of what he can potentially do. Right. And we know that he's um, coming back from an injury. But to see the kind of player that he has been, it's the same kind of thing that the A's did with like Trevor May and Peterson and Diaz, where you go, hey, he potentially has a high ceiling. From what I've seen from a lot of these players is like their ceiling that they're hitting now. It's like, okay, the ceiling was lower than we thought. I think with Blackburn, he's a a player that other teams could look at in that same kind of regard and maybe make a gamble and go, hey, this is a guy that we need to shore up because we need depth or even like, hey, we know you're a starter in Oakland. You're probably Oakland's ace. You're going to be a bullpen guy for us. Just kind of ranking how likely some of these guys are to be moved. A big part of that is the contract situation. So the reason Trevor May and Tony Kemp may be at the top of that list, besides their recent production, they're both free agents after this season. Jace Peterson, Alette Mestias, both have an extra year left on their deal after this season. So that's some value. You could try and pitch another team. The other guys I think the A's could move, uh, Carlos Perez, a veteran backup catcher with some pop. Sam Mole, a lefty reliever. He's under club control, but, you know, teams are always looking for strong relievers. Austin Pruitt, another guy, because these guys might not be part of the long-term future, but they're pitching well right now. So maybe you can package that. The guys I want to get your impression, and you bring a good segue with uh, Paul Blackburn, kind of the long shot guys. Now, these are guys that are under club control. They're not about to become free agents, but might have a lot of value right now that the A's could look to tap into. Paul Blackburn is on that list. He's not a free agent until 2026. He's arbitration eligible for the first time after this season. And you're right. He's been kind of the ace of the A's. He's done what the A's have been looking for. He's solidify that rotation, which is something that they desperately needed at the beginning of this year when they weren't getting guys that could go five innings or something like that. So there is still some value to having Paul Blackburn mentor this young pitching staff, which does not have any other veterans really on it. It was supposed to be he and Drew Rosinski. You know, Drew Rosinski just had back surgery. It hasn't worked out. So Paul Blackburn is the veteran leader on the pitching staff and an all-star, a starter, helping a lot of these guys. He's cheap. 
The A's may look to keep him, but they could also move him. I could understand why they would move him. I think that if they're going to move him, they would ask for something significant back or package him for something significant back because, as I mentioned, he's cheap and they still want those veteran guys to help keep things stable. I mean, basically, it's Paul Blackburn and J.P. Sears have been those kind of reliable guys allowing everyone else to kind of feel comfortable as they're working through, you know, what their situation is going to be like week in, week out. The other guys that I want to get your opinion on, Seth Brown falls in that same category. He's under club control until 2027. He's arbitration eligible for the first time this next season. So he's still cheap. He's about to get a raise. So no urgency for the A's to move Seth Brown because he can play first base, outfield, and DH. Those are also the positions you're looking to get a lot of time for Tyler Sodestrom, at least at first base and DH with Ryan Noda in the mix when he's back healthy. Seth Brown is a power bat. He hits righties well. Ten of his homers, all ten of his homers, have come against right-handed hitting, but he's versatile and he's cheap. So that's another one of those players the A's may consider packaging. Like if some team wanted, say, Paul Blackburn and Seth Brown, that's where you can maybe look to make a move, but you're giving up a lot of cheap club control. We know the A's aren't necessarily about giving up that cheap club control. It's just so hard to kind of make any kind of prediction of anything like this without really knowing the direction that the club is trying to head in. Are they actually trying to rebuild and to get back to that kind of status that they were that we know they do, where then these guys like Noda becomes the next like key A's first baseman, right? And like Ruiz becomes like our next great center fielder, you know? Are they really trying to do that? Are they just like, we don't care about anything but our ball club? Are they like, we are really just trying to like keep things cheap as we can possibly keep it? And like, this is kind of maybe like getting a little random and off topic here, but I feel like the A's have gotten so much national news coverage this year, more than they've typically gotten. And it's things like Anthony Rendon going into the stands to fight a fan. Right. Uh, Glenn Kuyper getting fired. It's the possum in the Mets broadcast booth. Like, this has been so ridiculous. <laughs> we are getting national attention for absolute clown reasons. And, like, you look at the team that's been on the field, and, it, like, we're at 28 wins at the middle to end of July. And you look at the pieces that the A's have, and like we said, like, yeah, you've traded a lot of pieces, and now you don't have a lot of pieces to move. Like, yes, you do have a lot of prospects. They're coming up. They're young. But what are you trying to do? Are you are you trying to be competitive in the future, or are you just trying to continue moving pieces? And it's just been a ridiculous season. I think there's two parts to that, because the A's, maybe more so than most teams, have a big split in the business side, which is run by Dave Cavill, and the baseball side, which is now run by David Forrest, previously by Billy Bean. Those two sides coexist in that they're in the same business, but they're two vastly different departments. And what Dave Cavill and John Fisher are trying to do with the ballpark and move to Vegas or whatever's going on there is separate from what is being done on the field. And the marching orders for the A's on the field and their baseball operation, it's pretty much the same. And what I, I think happened before the pandemic is the A's were trying to get into a model that was more like what we see the Tampa Bay Rays do, which is that you will be a little bit more consistent and you'll have years where you get competitive 
and you go for it. But rather than fall all the way back down like this last group of A's where it's like fall down closer to 40 wins and then rebuild to 97, the idea is to like build a team that can win 97 and when it falls apart, you fall down to like 78 wins or something like that. And to have transitioned from those star players to other young talent. But that changed during the pandemic. Like I think they had a goal in mind that they were going to replace Matt Olson and Matt Chapman with this current group of prospects, Tyler Soderstrom and Zach Geloff. So when you did move those guys, you had the next core coming in. And previous, it was going to be the pitching staff because the first guys out were going to be Chris Bassett and Sean Manaya, just when they ran into their contractual limitations for what the A's are going to pay. And I think at that point, they were thinking, well, we'll transition to Jesus Luzardo and to AJ Puck taking those rotation spots so that you don't have this steep fall off that we've seen. Now, a lot has changed on the business side of that, and the A's went with the full rebuild rebuild mode that we've seen in the last few years, uh, and that they've done, you know, consi- you know, they've done successfully over a twenty year period. And I think that we're watching that next rebuild phase that the A's have shown that they can do successfully, which does take three to four years to establish. So this is the second year of that rebuild mode. And yeah, the team has been worse than any of the other rebuild modes, but also they're bringing up talent that they believe has a much higher ceiling, much faster. I I hear what you're saying of these two arms operate independently, right? Like the baseball side and like, what do you call it? The business business side. side, right? But in some ways they do have to work in tandem, right? Especially if the business side is going, hey, in 2028, we're opening this stadium here and we want a quality team that's going to be out there. So then that means, do you have those guys now? Is Soderstrom, is Geloff, are they part of those plans for 2028? Is Ruiz, is Noda? So that's where those two arms work together. And then if they're not, then I wouldn't be surprised if some of those guys get moved, right? Because they, they do have a high ceiling. And so that's what I'm saying is like, who knows what the A's are going to do? What I kind of predict the A's are going to do is whatever you think would be the most unpredictable. Like other teams are going to do what they can to help them win. And I don't think that's true about the Oakland A's. To your point, that's what the A's have already done. I mean, they were supposed to be ready to move into a new ballpark at our terminal before the pandemic. This was their timeline to have gotten that done and had this project done. And in theory, you know, we we found the report later that they had made an offer to try and extend Matt Chapman. And their idea was that if we got a ballpark done in Oakland, that star power was going to be Matt Chapman, Matt Olson, and Sean Murphy. Those were going to be the players that we had established. And the way we were going to show that things have changed is we're going to pay them. And that's the message we were planning to send to the A's fan base that things are different now that we have a new ballpark. But you're right. That timeline has been extended out. And now it's 2028, 2029. So do these players like Ruiz and Noda and Soderstrom fall in that timeline? Absolutely, they do. And if they don't, you'll do the same thing again. You'll do that move where you trade those now established veteran players for that next crop. If it goes out that the timeline's not going to be 2034, 2035 before a new ballpark is done. And so that's what the A's will do. Is they'll keep just put, kicking the can down the road, bringing back talent as they've been able to do. And then when they're ready and they get a new ballpark, try and extend one or two of those established popular players 
to show, hey, things are different now that we've got the ballpark. We've been telling you that we're going to do it different, and here it is. We're, t- we're signing Zach Geloff to a seven-year deal. We're signing Tyler Soderstrom to a seven-year deal, and we're going to keep one or two of these guys and then kind of, you know, in the same way that the Cubs did, sign guys like, you know, you had Chris Bryant, you had, you know, uh, Anthony Rizzo. Make those the pillars of your franchise and just keep changing everything around them. What just is so frustrating as a fan and where, you know, we see that there are different goals between ownerships and fans and and things like that, right? But to see that news like, okay, we made Chappie a deal. He didn't want the deal. From the fan's perspective, it's like, then get somebody else. Get a new third baseman. Like, it it, it appears... But you know what, from the fan's perspective, I... I hear that, but here's the thing. These things don't exist in a bubble. The reason the clubs can exert some club control is because they have that arbitration system, right? So they got, a guy can't become a free agent for six years. But players don't want to sign for the A's when they have options. We've seen that time and time again. Go back to the you know Johnny Damon situation, Rafael for call when the A's tried to make a, a pitch to him. It's not a great ballpark as far as the amenities go, when all things are equal, if you have an option to go to a ballpark or a team that's going to have way better amenities, a much better clubhouse where you're going to spend a lot of your time versus what is available in Oakland, you're going to choose the other side of that, especially with the fan base situation being up, you know, iffy at, at best. So the A's having these young guys that they have control over, they don't have a choice. And when they've extended those offers to the Chapman, and he said, "No, you know what? I'm going to take my uh, I'm going to take my talents. I'll wait till free agency and what see what my market really is. That's what's going to happen until the A's get a new ballpark, and that's why they need that new ballpark to be able to compete. Not just for the financial reasons, just for the overall experience and amenities of the employees. Just think about it in your own work term. If you had an option to go work at a cruddy, rundown place." Or a really nice facility that like does what the tech companies does and offers you ping pong and you know meals. You're gonna go to the nicer place rather than if all things are equal, you're going to where it's just a little bit better. You're right on that, and I'll give you that. And a little bit, I'm gonna take a left here. Um, but last night, uh, Saturday, sorry, the fireworks game. You know, you get to go down on the field, but you get to take a look at that field. That field is immaculate. Oh, yeah. Like, it's up to MLBs. Shout out Clay Woods, man. Right? And so then that got me thinking, these fields are just absolutely immaculate. These guys are not taking short hops that are coming up to the teeth anymore. Then you think about these independent league players, like the Martinez Sturgeon. And if that guy makes a, a grab, he's making a diving grab. That is like an incredible play. When you you see those great plays in the MLB, you're like, yeah, he actually better have made that. That that field is incredible. When you see someone on the Martinez Surgeon making a diving play in the infield, there's probably about 70, 70% success. There's a 10% chance you just miss it. And then there's a 20% chance it takes a hop and now it's coming at your teeth, right? So if you make that play, it's just a totally different level. Then it gets you thinking back to like the records and this and that and the great players. And then you just think like, this field is so perfect. You better make those plays. The field is great. The actual field itself is fine. It does have that expansive foul territory, which pitchers love, hitters don't like as much, but 
if all things are equal, mm -hmm. because it is a major league quality field mm -hmm. the A's are playing on, no question about it. But if all things are equal and you have another major league quality field in, say, Philadelphia or, you know, in, in San Francisco, you're going to choose that nicer facility where they're spending more money on making the amenities nicer if all things are, are going to be equal. You're right that if you were playing on like a, a rundown field where it's got like the turf, which players don't like, and there's discussion that the A's might have to do that in Vegas if they build a new stadium, that they might have that field turf which is going to be another problem that they're going to have to deal with because veterans aren't going to want to go and spend their career out there unless you're making it really worth their while because players don't like playing on that turf. It just bangs up their bodies, which is why when you see the A's go to Toronto, they try to rotate guys in and out so you don't have that same consistent lineup that you might have with, this, with an established team because players might have a hurt back if they played all three games out in Toronto without getting a break as a DH or, you know, playing first base for a day. So that is something to consider. But again, it's just down to these know they need a new ballpark. Everyone's in agreement on that. As much as we love the Coliseum and the, the vibes of the last dive bar, they do need that modern ballpark to have the revenue streams to be able to compete with the way that money has gone up and the way that the players are going to want those things if those players have options. And they are sought-after players. And if the A's want to be able to compete to bring in sought-after players that have choices to go elsewhere, they need those things. That's just unquestioned right now. But what the A's are doing right now is just kicking the can down the road. And like you said, the business side is still trying to figure out where the long-term home is. Right now, their focus is on Vegas. Oakland's still in the mix from what we hear. And then the baseball operations department still trying to churn out a rebuild and do this again for the, the fourth or fifth time over the last 20 years and have this be that next version of it. So it's the two things. They do work in tandem a little bit, but it's really just the A's owner sets a budget and the A's baseball department figures out how to make that budget work. And that's why we've seen these creative deals that they've done with like signing Trevor Rosenthal, who they're still paying this year to that one year, $11 million deal. he never even played. Never even played for the A's. Yeah, so... That's why the A's are trying to do those kind of creative deals because they've got this limited budget. David Forrest, here, you've got $36 million, Do whatever you want with it. Spend it however you want, which is why they're not going to replace any of those guys like a Ruiz or a Noda before they have to because you're going to have to pay somebody the minimum anyway. Might as well be the most talented guy you can get for that low amount of money. And that's what they're going to try to do. And every once in a while, the A's surprise you. You know, the, the last iteration of this team with... Matt Olson and Matt Chapman and Sean Maniah and, you know, Chris Bassett, they were about a year ahead of schedule from what I think the A's thought that competitive window was going to open up. And they exploded. They went on a run. They won games. They made the playoffs. And I think they did it about a year ahead of what the A's were anticipating. And that kind of started this run, which is why this last competitive window for the A's was open for four years instead of three. And the A's extended that a little bit longer because they were able to keep that core together because they started their competitive run maybe a little earlier. And you look at this A's roster from what we've seen, they're still a year, two years away from being a good major league team if everything works out with Ruiz and Noda and Soderstrom and Geloff, eventually guys like Lawrence Butler, things like that. Nice Miller uh, to, yeah. 
take the rotation there. So uh, that's what I was going to say is like, when do you think, I heard you say there's still one to two years away from being good. What does good mean? Does good mean you're a 500 team or does good mean that you're in the hunt for the playoffs? Next year, that's where you really got to see the turn, right? You can't be fighting for 40 wins again next season, right? Like this season is about establishing who are going to be the young guys we're going to give opportunities to, right? Ryan Noda earned that. Ruiz has earned that. Right now, we're getting a look to see if Tyler Sodestrom and Zach Geloff are going to earn that. And it's a small sample size. They've only played eight games. We're going to talk about them in a minute. But that's going to be what you want established. It's no longer these big question marks. It's like, okay, next year, Ryan Noda is our first baseman. Shea Langoliers is our catcher. Sodestrom is going to play first catcher and DH. That's where he's going to get his at-bats. Zach Geloff, second base, you know, shortstop. Third base, still big question marks. Is it going to be Nick Allen? Is it going to be, uh, you know, Hernaz coming up through AAA and taking that spot? The reason that the A's signed some of these veteran guys was to wait for these guys to take those jobs, those young guys to say, okay, we can get rid of Tony Kemp and Aletmus Diaz and Jace Peterson because, you know, Kevin Smith took the third base job, which didn't happen, you know, because Zach Eloff might take the second base job. The reason they were able to make a move earlier this year and move Jesus Aguilar is because Ryan Noda took that first base job and said, this is mine. I've got it. He made it an easy decision for Mark Kotze and David Forrest, where they just had like, you know, Jesus, we brought you in for this role, but turns out we didn't need you. Thank you so much. Best of luck in in the next move. So that's what you're going to be looking forward to. The next year, you need to make a leap. You need to get into that mold where you're winning 60 games, 70 games, still a low bar. But then it makes that next leap to being a competitive team a lot more, you know, doable when you're right. Like, hey, you know, if these things work out with those young players, it's possible to get back into that competitive mold, especially now that there are six playoff spots, three wild cards up for grabs. Getting into the playoffs should be a lot easier than it has for those other A's rebuilds. Do you see Seth Brown as part of this rebuild, considering that, you know, he's under control and we think this team could be better in one to two years? That's why I think they might move him this year. I could see them moving him. I I don't think he'll be part of that core team, but he could be a veteran that like eventually transitions or gets moved in the next year or so. But there's no urgency, I think, to move a Seth Brown. But I think he's kind of like one of those kind of cusp bubble players where he's going to like run out of like service time for what the A's can cheaply afford to do with them before they kind of reestablish themselves. Because if it does take two years to be good, that's going to be right around his last year of arbitration right before he's hitting free agency. But before we run out of time, Rick, I did want to get your early impressions. It's been a week since the A's called up three of their top prospects, Tyler Soderstrom, Zach Geloff, Freddie Tarnock, all called up been eight games you know Soderstrom is struggling a little bit more in that first week he's hitting just 120 he's walked three times he struck out 10 times in 25 at bats doesn't have an extra base hit yet the guy that's kind of taken it to like a duck to water has been Zach Geloff again same small sample size hitting 276 915 OPS in his first eight games three doubles a triple and on Saturday night we got to see his first home run he looked like 
he's come up and just been like, okay, I got this. Yeah, looks like I, I can figure this out. It's been good to see that. I've really been excited for Soderstrom, and I think I've watched his at-bats more than I've watched Geloff's at-bats. You know, typically I have the game on, and I'm like doing other stuff, but then I'll, I'll hear, oh, Soderstrom's coming up, so I'll go watch. And yeah, because I've heard so much from you, and yeah, I, I, he's the one I've been watching the most, and you know, hoping to see it, and you're just not seeing it. And then Geloff, you know, I, I hear him a lot, and then like I know they they I've seen them batting like really like one in front of the other often. Um, I don't really know what the lineup has been, right. but then it's like I usually miss Geloff's at bat, and then I find out like, oh, that's the one you wanted to watch, so. or he's the guy that's on base. You know, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so no, uh, the Saturday game, um, uh, I think like didn't he have a couple mistakes to start it out, and then uh, then yeah. he came through and totally redeemed himself. Yeah, so. and he had you know he he tried to make that catch in the outfield. He kind of fell awkward on his shoulder. Then he had the throwing error, his first error as he threw the ball into the dugout. So that could have been related to what happened. And one last thing before we get out of here, run out of time. On Tuesday, A's and Giants will open a two-game Battle of the Bay series in San Francisco. Those games are going to feature the latest protest ever by A's fans in a collaboration of the Oakland 68s and Last Dive Bar, the groups that helped organize that very successful reverse boycott effort in Oakland and one of the cooler moments of the season. They've got those Oaklandish cell shirts that have become ubiquitous around Major League Baseball this year. And the group is planning a Unite the Bay Night. They're inviting Giants fan to join in the protest. And there's even an alternate cell shirt that's going to be available in black instead of in green. There's also a poster for that game. It's kind of a variation of the 1989 World Series poster, but instead of, you know, two hulking sluggers playing tug-of-war with a World Series title, it's going to be two players standing on either side of the bay, shaking hands, locking arms, showing that united front. It's going to have a similar model to the reverse boycott and the protest we saw at the All-Star game. They're going to be asking fans to stand in silence at the first at-bat of the top of the fifth inning and then follow that up with the sell the team chant that we've heard around and around. So before we get out of here, Rick, just really curious about what you're expecting to see this week, and will A's and Giants fans be able to unite the Bay in this protest effort? I have never been to the Giants stadium. I've always said I'm going to go to a Giants and A's game. Every time it happens, something comes up, I can't go. I've been looking at this. I've been really excited. I'm like, I'm going to go. And as soon as this podcast is over, I'm driving down to L.A., so I'm going (laughs) to miss it. So I was so excited. Uh, Will it work out? I don't know. You know, I've gone to a lot of Giants and A's games, and it does seem like it's more of a friendly rivalry than like band rivalry. Because we're not in the same division. I've had some great times tailgating at uh, A's Giants games, and everyone's, you know, ribbing each other. But if we're not really battling until it gets to the World Series, which hasn't happened, you know, since, since 89. Yeah. Um, and, then, and, you know, it, it got close recently. I think the Giants went all the way, but the A's, you know, didn't make it. I think it would have been fun. It would have been cool to see Giants fans jump on board, even though there is a love-hate relationship with them. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. The fans may be sympathetic to the plight of the A's fans. Giants fans went through something similar, kind of their own saga of maybe losing their team. That was nearly 30 years ago. But Giants ownership, they are most certainly going to be on the side of wanting the A's out of this market and wanting this market all to themselves. This has been the Win or Hughes podcast. I'm Joe Hughes alongside my brother, Eric Hughes. You can find us on social media 
at Hughes on Twitter. You can also find me on Twitter at VegasJoeHughes. And you can find us on YouTube as well. Make sure to like and subscribe. New episodes debut every Monday. Thanks for listening to the Winter Hughes Podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe.